This week's TripCast is presented by CPS Energy. What will cities of the future look like? Join us in San Antonio for an enriching two-day learning experience with diverse leaders driving creative solutions for modern cities. More at cityofthefuture.io. And the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life, celebrating 20 years at our annual Great Conversations Dinner on March 26th. More information at bit.ly slash gctickets2020. Hello and welcome to the February 19th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by justice and politics reporter Emma Plata. Hello. Political reporter Cassie Pollock. Hey there. And political reporter Alex Samuels. Hi. As always, we'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way using the hashtag Tribcast. All right. Well, let's start uh, with yesterday's announcement that uh, State Senator Kirk Watson from Austin uh, is retiring. Cassie, tell us a little bit more about this departure. Yeah, Watson announced that he is resigning from the Texas Senate, uh, effective uh, midnight April 30th, and he's actually going to be leaving office to become the first dean of the University of Houston's Hobby School of Public Affairs. Uh, so, you know, yesterday was uh, largely people kind of weighing in, saying how sad they are that Watson, a, a longtime figurehead of Austin politics, uh, is is leaving the city. And then there was, um, in a, you know, typical order, a, a mad dash towards uh, people uh, coming out and saying that they're strongly considering uh, a run for the seat, which will, uh, you know, ha- have a special election at some point. Yeah, maybe this is a good time to say that I, I believe none of the four of us plan to enter the room. Correct. Let, let the record reflect the record. that. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I realize this joke has been made about 12 <laughs> dozen times since not yesterday. <laughs> not that one. But in reality, like, who is not strongly considering among the people that you might suspect to be possible suspects to run for this? Yeah, I mean, honestly... Can you, can you name them all? There's so many. <laughs> I can tell you who has said that they're strongly okay. considering a okay. run just because we're still in that phase of uh, everybody uh, kind of feeling the need to come out and say that they're looking at it and that they're receiving an outpour of, of support and encouragement from fans of, friends and family to uh, you know look at running for the seat. I'm really curious what that outpour actually looks like. <laughs> so many Twitter DMs. Yeah. A, a ton of them coming in. So we have your, your four uh, uh, not f- actually four of the five. Actually, no, we do have somebody who said that they're not considering Cheryl Cole. That's true. The state, uh, okay. state House Representative <laughs> from Austin. Right. So she's one of, I believe, um, five uh, House members from the Austin area uh, who said that she she is not interested in running. She's, um, you know, one of the new, newer House members. Um, but then the other four, Eddie Rodriguez, Donna Howard, Celia Israel, Gina Hinojosa, they all put out statements or responded to reporters' uh, requests for comments yesterday saying that they uh, are weighing their options right now. So we have that at the state house level. Uh, and then we have uh, a mix of local elected officials ranging from Austin City Council member Greg Kassar to, uh, you know, County Judge Sarah Eckhart to uh, a few different just, you know, people who kind of uh, mix themselves with local politics uh, coming out and saying that they're running for the seat. So um, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, I am curious, you know, the Texas Senate is sort of the farthest away from rowdy or fiery as possible these days. 
But I, I do sort of think about the role that Watson often played for Democrats in the chamber. I mean, like, I remember sitting through the confirmation hearing of David Whitley, and Watson was on the nominations hearing and basically deposed Whitley from, from the dais throughout. I mean, it was a really, really intense questioning. You could always sort of tell when he was on the floor when Democrats were kind of preparing to fight legislation, even though it probably wasn't going to go their way because of the split. But, you know, I, I do wonder sort of, does someone else step up to do that in Watson's absence? Or is that something that you instead get from his successors? I don't know. I mean, Emma, you spent a ton of time in the Senate chamber <laughs> last year. What do you think are sort of the ramifications for Democrats in the Senate without him? Yeah, I think you make a good point. You know, Kirk Watson is a longtime attorney and when he's on the floor, he sounds like one. You know, he, he you almost feel like you're watching like a really good scene in Law and Order sometimes. He's really eloquent. He asks really uh, lawyerly questions and sometimes that can be important in litigation over state laws. The Senate is also a place where seniority is really important. I think, you know, that's true in both chambers of the legislature, but um, just coming in as a freshman senator from Austin, I think it would be hard to sort of take up the stature that he has, having been in the chamber for, I think, more than a decade now. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to see kind of what happens. The Senate Democrats are sometimes kind of criticized for not having a strong enough backbone in the face of a really firm leader in uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. So it'll be interesting to see what fills the void. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder about the names we've heard so far that could potentially replace him. I mean, I guess really sort of the biggest flamethrower of all of them, just like at first glance, could probably be Greg Kassar, just like based on what we've seen from him at the city council level. Um, Alex, you're laughing. What did he actually, you were the one who talked to him yesterday. How did he sort of frame his considerations to you and did uh, that play a role at all? He just sent me a text. I was okay. actually in Houston doing something completely unrelated and he sent me a message saying that he was planning on reaching out to Cassie and to, I think, Matthew or Rebecca, one of our editors here, yeah, yeah. but wanted to let me know he was, quote, seriously considering a run for hmm. uh, the Senate seat. And I think he told KUT and the Statesman and a couple of other folks. Um, my biggest interactions with him last session were during the sick leave um, hmm. bills and whatnot. And it was just really interesting to see his relationship. I think Dade Phelan chaired the um, State Affairs Committee where all those bills went and just to see the two of them going at it, it'd be interesting to see if Kassar was in the legislature, him just sort of, you know, obviously maybe not getting along with some leadership in that way. Yeah, I mean, Greg Kassar is one of the most, perhaps the most liberal member of the Austin City Council, which is obviously a far, far, far more progressive body than either chamber of the state legislature. So um, it's kind of interesting to think about kind of a fiery progressive character in, in a chamber, particularly in the Texas Senate, where Democrats seem to make the most progress where they're sort of pragmatic, they're sort of willing to compromise, they make incremental progress. Um, it's kind of interesting to see what his approach would be like if he were elected. Obviously, that's a long, long ways away. Yeah, I mean, it feels like some of the Democratic candidates coming out of the House, I mean, those are folks who are probably sort of pretty used to, at least in some ways, interacting with the Texas Senate, you know, not directly, but, you know, I think of people like Donna Howard who, you know, are pretty good at bo both when they're up at the front mic, but also the back mic when they're sort of questioning. But, you know, it's, it's, they've been in the minority for a long time, but it'd be a pretty big political minority in the Senate if things sort of don't go their way or if the rules are changed to where the Democrats continue to not have a ton of power. Um, we have a question from Lorena Reina, who is asking, are any Republicans running for the Watson seat? Have we heard anything yet, Cassie? Uh, nothing 
for sure yet. Uh, the seat's considered to be a pretty, um, you know, left-leaning one or, you know, historically democratic. Um, the name Ellen Troxclair, I think she's now with TPPF, a former Austin City Council member. That name's come up a couple times. Uh, I don't think she's put anything out there on that. Um, and, you know, to... Uh, anybody's, uh, or I, I guess to the broader point, any Republican seriously running for this seat, you know, would need to raise the kind of money that somebody like a Donna Howard or a Gina Hinojosa or an Eddie Rodriguez would be able to have just given their, you know, ties and, and backing with the, the local Austin community. So, yeah. What is the calculation for a House member? I mean, especially someone like Donna Howard, relatively senior in the lower chamber, been there a long time to to try to switch over. I mean, the Senate is seen as maybe more elite. Obviously, you represent more people, but you're maybe giving up some of your leadership. I mean, there's like she wants to be appropriations chair is sort of like whatever the like general consensus among people who aren't Donna Howard. And, you know, with the House, the possibility of the House flipping. And if she does get that, you know, yeah. I guess people want her to run for speaker yeah. as well. But I guess there's a there's a sort of clearer possible trajectory but also that depends on the house flipping there's like two sides to this and i think a fair number of folks were surprised when when howard put out that statement yesterday saying that she was considering a run just because of what you guys are both saying you know she's kind of been considered one of uh you know the top house democrats kind of a a house body could eat could at some point run for speaker if if Democrats do end up flipping the chamber, could serve as appropriations chair if that worked out for her. You know, what's the calculus for running for Senate? Um, and then the flip side to that is, well, running for Senate is in a lot of ways uh, a once-in-a-lifetime uh, opportunity, especially uh, one opening up like this in your, uh, you know, district like that. You, you would, uh, as one person put it to me, you know, you'd be foolish to not even at least consider weighing your options for running for the seat. And, you know, similar calculations, I think, for people like Celia Israel, who's just appointed to chair the House, uh, the HDCC. Um, you know, she's in a, in a leadership position in the House, uh, leading Democrats and affiliated groups uh, on this path to trying to flip the chamber. You know, what's, what's the upshot for somebody like her running for a state Senate seat? And, you know, I think the answer is you just at least have to look at it. Yeah. Well, so it would be a special election probably in May, but that means everyone can still run for re-election as part for the House and still run for the Senate seat. They wouldn't have to actually give up anything right. to do that. Right. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Well, let's move from the Texas Senate to the presidential race. Um, early voting started yesterday. We still don't have full numbers for what day one looked like. They're probably rolling in while we're sitting here, um, but we'll get those at some point today. But I wanted to back up to last week when we posted the results from our poll that showed um, Bernie Sanders was in the lead. Uh, Alex, fill us in with some of those with more details. You know, the poll was sort of conducted amid Iowa, but before New Hampshire. But, you know, sort of what has been the reaction? What have been your takeaways from that poll? Um, So, yeah, as you mentioned, Sanders is ahead, I think, by two percentage points. Uh, I think he had 24 percent compared to Biden's 22 percent. Bloomberg is uh, climbing in Texas, and I think this is the first poll we've put out since Bloomberg has been in the race. Um, The results aren't entirely surprising to me. Um, Biden was ahead in the beginning. He had the name ID coming behind him. He had the whole, you know, VP for Obama. I'm sure that helped him here in Texas. Um, But as he started to slip, um, just in national polls, and this was even before Iowa and New Hampshire, other candidates have made plays for Texas. And we've seen that in Sanders. We've seen that in Warren. More recently, we've seen that in Bloomberg. So it's not entirely surprising that they are starting to climb in uh, the Texas poll. 
Yeah. I mean, Sanders just so happened to be in town or, I mean, in the state Mm -hmm. when that was announced and sort of pretty directly said we're going to win Texas. Um, But it, I mean, it sort of feels like there are still a lot of things in motion, right? Obviously, we've got Nevada. We've got South Carolina coming up. And when he, you know, like when he's not saying weird things about cats and dog pounds, Bloomberg is sort of, (laughs) you know, picking up endorsements from the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner. Klobuchar Mm -hmm. picked up the, what was it, the endorsement of the Houston Chronicle editorial board. Mm -hmm. But she maybe doesn't have people on the ground. I mean, how fluid is the situation still in the presidential primary, even as early voting has started? I feel like it's still pretty fluid. Um, Iowa and New Hampshire obviously demographically look nothing like Texas. Um, nothing at all. <laughs> so as you mentioned, it'll be interesting to see what happens in Nevada. I think uh, Sanders has shown a lot of strength with the, with the Latino community. So it'll be interesting to see how he plays there. Biden, meanwhile, has shown a lot of strength with black voters. So it'll be interesting to see how he fares in South Carolina. And then we come to Texas where there's you know sort of a mix of everyone. So it'll be interesting to see who pulls ahead. But as you mentioned, um, a lot of folks are making a play for Texas. Um, Klobuchar announced, I think, over the weekend that she's going to have staff in every Super Tuesday state. She didn't give specific figures on what she's doing here in Texas. Um, Buttigieg has folks on the ground now. I went to an event in Houston last night and his regional director was there, which I had never seen um, someone just on the ground for Buttigieg in Texas. Um, And then, of course, as you mentioned, Sanders was at a rally in Dallas. Um, Biden has had a few fundraisers here and there. So I think everyone's sort of making their individual play for Texas. But I think it's fair to say that the front runners in the state are still Biden, Sanders. And then I'd I'd throw Warren and Bloomberg up there in the top four. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am curious how much voters do consider waiting for Nevada and waiting for South, South Carolina. I mean, I guess if you wait for South Carolina, you might only have election day to actually participate in reaction to that um but i don't know i mean the turnout i felt like it was really quiet yesterday Mm. despite it being the first day of early voting i don't know that that's a signal about what turnout will eventually be but i am curious you know cassie there's been a ton of conversation sort of at the and a ton of presidential endorsements coming out of the legislature you know house members in particular are sort of endorsing uh, just about everyone before we get to early voting. Um, But are there any sort of like quiet conversations or rumblings about which presidential candidate on the Democratic side does more for them to get the turnout they need in November, you know, with the stakes about flipping the house and sort of targeting all of these districts? I've got to think that that's something people are considering beyond their individual endorsements. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, and maybe Alex can speak more to this, but there's the idea of, uh, you know, which candidate in the race is, is a coalition builder, which one is going to kind of bring out uh, voters to, uh, you know, vote down ballot all the way down to a state house level um, race. I think there's probably some question, and maybe it's a fair question about, can somebody like a Biden or Warren uh, attract as broad of a base to come out and vote down ballot like that? I don't know. Does that seem to line up with kind yeah. of your assessment of where yeah. things are? I'd say so. I mean, the biggest question for Democrats is who has the best chance of beating Donald Trump? And I don't think anyone in the legislature has endorsed Sanders, even though he was ahead in our poll. Yeah, um, I that's might what be I wrong on that. Yeah, I, I 
thought that that was the case too and I found yeah. that really interesting yeah I yeah, actually mo- didn't even realize that yeah most in the legislature have endorsed Biden and then uh, Warren's in like a second place but I, th- I think um he maybe some Bloomberg yeah like, a f- yeah, like one, one. <laughs> Blanco <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so people are pretty split but I think there is a very valid question on is a Sanders or Warren maybe too left for Texas if Texas is sort of purpling would Biden be the best person to turn out those suburban women who don't want Trump or those moderate Republicans and, um, uh, or sorry, those uh, rural Democrats maybe. Is Biden the best person to do that and not a Sanders? So I think that's definitely a question that uh, the legislature is wrestling with as they think of who they want to endorse, if anyone. Yeah. And also I think, you know, there's a huge turnout question, of course, in November, but there's a huge turnout question for the primary. Just looking at some of the numbers yesterday, in 2008, nearly 3 million people vote. That was the, you know, contested Obama, Hillary Clinton, Democratic primary, nearly 3 million people voted in the Democratic primary in Texas. In 2016, I think the number was closer to 1.4 million with kind of a more certain race here. So that has huge implications for people running down ballot. Yeah, of course. And, you know, we were talking last week about using behavior from the primary to sort of think about November without straight ticket voting. But it just seems like it, I mean, it, it feels like a very different primary to the ones we've seen before it's probably the most divided field we've seen so far that I don't know that we can actually go that far and, and make that assumption just yet. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a really interesting one. And there's also the fact that, like, on Super Tuesday, sure, you can say who won the statewide vote, but the delegate count, right. I think the math will actually also be really interesting and in what portions of the state maybe go for different candidates. And we'll be able to see that at the Senate district level, which, I mean, they're obviously huge. And in some places, you know, like my Senate district goes from Austin down to my hometown in Laredo. But I I do think it'll be interesting to see regionally as well, to your point about, you know, Democrats in different areas of the state who maybe are a bit more conservative or a bit more moderate, what, who gets the support in some of those areas? Right. I will add, if I forgot, Julie Johnson is a Bloomberg supporter. Ah, yeah, okay. I knew that there was Blanco was not alone. Not to <laughs> Blanco was the first, yeah. right? I just want that on the record for everyone. And uh, what's his name? Joe Des Hotel. You know. Oh, right. Okay. So also, Bloomberg also has a couple. <laughs> the to, your, yeah. to your point about Senate districts, I mean, I think that's really interesting. Is the Biden campaign seriously making a serious play for any of the rural Senate districts that are more than likely... Well, I shouldn't say more than likely, but the way that I'm thinking of it is those rural Senate districts are are maybe more inclined to go towards one of the more centrist candidates in the race. Am well, and I they wrong have wrong in thinking that they have fewer delegates to go after. Right. So I do wonder either the, right. the math is kind of weird. It's based on uh, Democratic turnout in the 16 and 18 elections. Right. Um, so like Kirk Watson seat, I think has the highest level of delegates, the the district delegates to give out of it's 149. So I don't know. I mean, I guess it makes sense to focus a lot in the Austin area if you're trying to go after the delegate rich Watson seat. Um, whereas in some of those more rural areas, it's probably harder to sort of actually, I mean, Texas is so expensive to campaign in that it Mm -hmm. feels like you've got to, you're probably focusing where there are more delegates, I would think. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's the advantage that Bloomberg has is that he can throw money to rural and suburban Texas and through like TV advertisements rather than having to actually physically go um, into these various parts of the state. Yeah, I mean, I was in the panhandle a few weeks ago and there was a Bloomberg ad running up there. I mean, it was sort Mm -hmm. of squished in between two Republicans running for Congress and the tone of it was obviously very, very different from Bloomberg to one of these Republican primary hopefuls. But yeah, I mean, like he's in the panhandle and he never really has to go up there. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, let's talk about uh, 
different race that where there's probably less money and definitely less name ID. Definitely uh, less <laughs> money. <laughs> that one, yeah. Um, our poll, we also had our poll showing um, the results in the U.S. Senate race for the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate race for who will take on John Cornyn in November. MJ Hager widened her lead. Hager, Hagar, have we decided on the pronunciation? Was there any discussion about this at the debate last night? I'm going to go with Hager. Just because that's what our comptroller is. Okay. Um, she widened her lead in a very, very crowded field with 22% of self identified Democratic primary voters um, who said that she would be their pick. I mean, at this point, it's impossible to tell who is a number two in what's obviously going to go into a runoff. But I am curious, you know, you all just wrote these profiles on some of the sort of more well known candidates in the race. And I'm I'm wondering if if this is something they're thinking about at all, right? Like the idea of at one point, 56% of voters were undecided in this race. The name ID of someone like Royce West, I mean, and someone whose name is Annie Mama Garcia, who nobody knows is just like one percentage behind him in in our poll. I mean, how, how, if at all, are the candidates thinking about this? Well, I think if you're someone like a Royce West, the the name ID is a huge part of your path to making it to the runoff and ultimately winning the nomination. You know, he has much higher name ID. This is a race where like geographic centers of support are really important. So if he can turn out South Dallas, if he can turn out the North Texas area that he's represented in the state Senate for 27 years, that's a really big plug for him, even if, you know, voters in Amarillo or Laredo don't know his name yet. What about the other candidates? I mean, I know, uh, we're only focusing on sort of five of the crowded field, mm-hmm. but I mean, Chris Bell's been on the ballot about a million times in the last few years or decades. Um, but And he seemed to sort of benefit from that, at least in recognition of who he was in our poll. Um, but is he sort of, I mean, is it an uphill battle even to get that number two spot at this point? Um I'm I'm not really sure. I mean, uh, didn't he rank second in name ID in in this most recent poll? Uh, but you know, that tra- that hasn't necessarily maybe translated uh, for him in the way that it has for say a Royce West in the Dallas area, and so for Chris Bell respectively the Houston area. Um, you know, when I was writing that profile on Bell, uh, something that people who I was speaking to for my story kept just kind of pointing back to is, you know, we've been really surprised at uh, how the endorsements that maybe you could have could have expected uh, for him, uh, for, for Bell in this race to come out of the Houston area just haven't come out mm-hmm. uh, yet. And whether that's the fact that it's a pretty contested primary or something else, you know, who knows, but. Oh, sorry, I just got an email. Richard Pena Raymond has just endorsed Bloomberg. Ah, his okay. account is News growing. happening. <laughs> Thank you for that update. <laughs> um, all right. Well, before we get to our next topic, we've got two more sponsors we've got to go to. Roads are about destinations. They're also about destiny. Connecting Texas by Gary Shar is available now everywhere books are sold. Learn more at texastribune.org. And... Become a Texas Tribune business member today to support our nonprofit newsroom and the kind of news, events, and analysis that make for a better, smarter Texas. Join at support.texastribune.org business. Okay, well, the last thing we will talk about this week is, Emma, your story from last Friday. Um, in which a Democratic candidate for the Texas Supreme Court said his primary opponent had selfish 
quote, selfish motivations for running uh, for office. Tell us a bit more about the situation. So this is the first year in a long time that Democrats are even running contested primaries for these high court seats. They often have trouble even recruiting candidates at all. Um, but this is a contested primary for the chief justice seat. So one of the you know bigger roles that's at, at stake on this primary ballot. And I was just doing kind of routine calls. This particular race is between one woman, Amy Clark Meacham, who's a longtime trial court judge here in Travis County. Um, and she's mentioned throughout her campaign that she, if elected, um, she would be the first woman ever elected chief justice. And I was interviewing her primary opponent, Jerry Zimmerer, who's an appellate judge in Houston, and he used the word selfish. Um, let me just read a quote here. He said, I just think somebody who wants to try to break barriers for their own benefit is not going to be successful. I just don't think that's what voters are looking for. That's a goal she wants to achieve for herself. Yikes. Um, I mean, this is like, I don't even know how to <laughs> work through this one. So Meacham has talked about why this would be important, right? Like I think in one quote that you mentioned in your story, I think she told the Houston Chronicle that she was what making an important statement for women in, in the law and just like in the general primary. I mean, what was her response to this? She said, well, I'll read you that quote as well. <laughs> she said, these sorts of sexist comments are straight from the 1950s. If he chooses to disparage a more qualified and experienced judge because of her gender, he'll find himself on the wrong side of history. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, she's she's made her campaign about her experience, but she has also emphasized that this would be a historic victory for women in the law. You know, I went to her campaign kickoff event this fall in Austin. She had her three children introduce her. And I, one of her daughters said something along the lines of, you know, mom teaches us to follow the rules, but that glass ceilings are meant to be broken. It's it's a part of her campaign, but it's, of course, not the only part of her campaign. Sure. Um, and so I think she was sort of unsurprisingly pretty upset and angry about the comments. Right. Because she, I mean, she is in elected office now, right? She does have experience and has also pointed to that. Yeah. She's served on the bench here in Austin since 2011, and he was elected in November 2018 to an appellate court in Houston. Um, and one of the points he was making was that as an appellate judge, obviously the Texas Supreme Court hears appeals. So he was making the, the argument that his experience better prepares him for that job. Her argument would be, you know, I've been on the bench nearly a decade here in Travis County and my experience as a trial judge prepares me pretty well too. So, yeah. Um, I mean, this, this is actually a court though, that has never been led by a woman in the chief job, right? I mean, it's never even reached 50-50 in terms of the people elected to it? No, there are three women currently on the court of nine members total. Um, the only time there was more than 50% women on the court was actually 1925. There was this weird case that involved Woodmen of the World, a fraternal organization that had, among its members, many prominent attorneys in the state and also the three Texas Supreme Court justices at the time. So the governor was kind of scratching his head, like, who can I appoint to hear this case? Who doesn't have a conflict of interest? And finally he settled on three women. But that was the, the, only that was the first and last time, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I do, you, you called Zimmer back. And in your story, he sort of talks about, you know, coalition building and his concerns about, you know, people seeking to divide the party in some ways, I think is the, the way he phrased it. But, you know, I feel like this is something we've seen over and over again when you when you think about women and people of color running for office and often sort of being the, like, quote-unquote, first in a lot of those elected offices. I mean, I, I remember 
when I was writing about Julian Castro last year and how he was sort of navigating white presidential politics, he, I mean, it was really difficult to find any sort of public remark in which he would say just flat out that he would be the first Hispanic president. I mean, he talked about the significance of it, but he hardly ever even said the words that he would be the first one. And, you know, with, with Amy Clark Meacham, like she has actually said that a lot in it. Obviously, like both are okay, but it just seems like there's sort of no winning. I mean, you're sort of constantly navigating this line and there's there's no way to do it in a way that makes other people happy, even though it feels like you kind of shouldn't have to. Yeah, I think that's a, a question for anyone who, as you said, is running to be the first anything. There's a question of, um, you know, is this the way that I may gain support? I'm, I'm trying to win support in a very low information race and maybe voters and female attorneys and, you know, women all over the state may feel like, wow, you would be the first woman elected to this position. And I may not know much else, but that makes me want to cast my ballot for you. But there's a threat of sort of being accused of playing identity politics. Yeah. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to CPS Energy, the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life and Connecting Texas, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Emma, Cassie and Alex and our producers, Michael, Ray and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.